Hi, my name is Bob, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Uh, in AA, I'm known as Goldine's husband. I have no identity. <laughs> but it's uh, real nice to be in Nashville. This is my first uh, visit to Nashville, and uh, uh, what I've seen in Nashville is from the airport here, and I walked around the parking lot this morning, and looks, your city looks pretty good to me. You know? But it's real nice to be invited to, uh, to share experience, strength, and hope at conventions like this throughout the country. And uh, I learned in Al-Anon, uh, I was taught in Al-Anon, never say no to an Al-Anon request, and sometimes I wonder why that occurred, and now I think I understand. I was listening to uh, Bernadette yesterday, uh, you know, she had all these children. Reminds me of this uh, member of Al-Anon who has had so many children all the time, and she was pregnant all the time, and she really couldn't understand. She was awfully hard of hearing. And what happened is that she would go home, and she and her husband would go to bed, and her husband would say, do you want to go to sleep or what? And she'd say, what? <laughs> this is uh, part of the Bible Belt, I understand. Is that right? So all of you know about the Bible. There's a story of alcoholism in the Bible, the story of the alcoholic, and the story of Al-Anon. And maybe m many of you haven't, uh, haven't read it, but I don't know whether I have the facts exactly right, but uh, you remember th there was this alcoholic down by the well, and there were a bunch of people formed around this alcoholic, and they were cursing the alcoholic and deriding the alcoholic and uh, uh, doing all these things, putting the alcoholic down. And a man stepped forward and he said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. And here comes the spouse of that alcoholic throwing a great big rock at him. <laughs> when I came into Al-Anon, uh, I came in before my wife's sobriety, and for that I'm grateful. And I say I'm grateful for that because it taught me, the Al-Anon program taught me that whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not, I can have some sort of peace of mind. And this is what I found in Al-Anon. Now, I wasn't in a state of euphoria while she was still drinking. Don't get me wrong there. But uh, uh, Al-Anon taught me I did not have to react to her. And that whether I was comfortable or not was my decision rather than her decision. So uh, uh, for that reason, I say I'm very, very grateful. But when I came into Al-Anon, when we got on the program, there was absolutely nothing left of the marriage that had been going on for about 22 years. Absolutely nothing left. I hated her. I loathed her. I uh, had no respect for her, didn't trust her, and I'm sure that she felt the same towards me. We both had reason to feel that way, we thought, you know. But several years ago, or quite a number of years ago, uh, I asked Goldine, I said, did we ever at any time sit down and say, let's see if we can work out our marriage? We had no counseling or anything like that. She said, no, nothing like that ever occurred. What happened is that each one of us on our own programs tried to work our own program and as a result of that, a healing occurred. And that's the name of this program here. It's a healing program. That if we put those things into uh, our lives, uh, a healings in relationships take place. And uh, uh, this is really, uh, really what happened. A healing has taken place, and I think there's a feeling of love between my wife and I. Uh, and uh, at, at least from my viewpoint, I don't have the right to even ask my wife whether she, there is love from her to me, but I assume there is because she still uh, hangs around, you know, we've been married a little over 51 years now, and, and uh, 
In Southern California, that's considered a sin. <laughs> a number of years ago, we had the privilege of going up to Vancouver, British Columbia, to a conference up there, a convention, and we decided to take a, make a vacation out of it. We took a week off and went up there, rented a car, drove around the islands, and just had a fabulous, fabulous time. And the convention was at a five-star hotel up there, the Pan Pacific, I believe was the name of it, and... And uh, I went in there to register, and gee, this, uh, you know, it's about, about like this place here, just a great, great place, atmosphere, and, uh, and uh, uh, as I was walking back to the car, I thought, what did I ever do to deserve this? And then I realized I used to say the same thing before sobriety. I said, what did I ever do to deserve this? <laughs> but I've come to understand this, that we are a deserving people. Nothing special, but we're absolutely deserving of all the goodness in life. And to me, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, the 12 concepts are the pathway and the doorway to this unlimited goodness that's available. Uh, there's a man out in, uh, and, and I don't think it comes the first week, the first month, the first year. There's a man out in the Inland Empire who claims to have something like 35 years of sobriety. He's absolutely miserable. He's angry at everything. Uh, etc. And I, I said, he doesn't have 35 years of sobriety. He's got one year of sobriety 35 times. You know, uh, he says, uh, you know, he beats his wife, kicks the kids, and he says, at least I didn't have to drink today. Now, I think there's more to the program than that. <laughs> you know. And, I, and that's why I stick around the program, to try to find the in-depth, the in-depth of what this is, and to dig a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. It was about 12 years ago, I, I walked away, you know, I listened to my guidance system. And sometimes my guidance system just doesn't seem to be on the right track. Uh, uh, you know, intu intuition is hardly ever logical. But I had this feeling that I should walk, give up a business that uh, my wife and I had. And it was about 12 years ago, and we walked away. I walked away. My wife thought I was crazy. I just walked away. I didn't try to sell the business or anything. I just walked away from it. Something inside of me was telling me to do that, and I had to go get in touch with myself. So I took a week off, and I went camping just by myself. And I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to be around anybody. I just wanted to meditate and pray, do some writing, and, and, and try to understand what was taking place in my life. And one night, I ended up down in Tucson, Arizona, at a county uh, park, and it was a large park. And I went in there. And I went clear to the back end, and I was probably a quarter of a mile from anybody, just to be by myself. And during the middle of the night, I heard a car drive up. And the next morning, I got out to make myself some coffee, and I looked over this car, and here a guy in the back seat sat up, and he had a bottle, and I thought, my God, I still attract alcoholics. <laughs> <laughs> I got to uh, talking to him. He had been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for 10 or 12 years. He had had a slip. He was on a two-week drunk. He was trying to kill himself. He had been a director of a 12-step program or a 12-step house in Tucson. But his spiritual pride wouldn't allow him to go back and get some help, you know, so he's drinking himself to death. I left there before he did, and uh, uh, as I left, I, I said, I love you. And he started to cry. You see, that's the disease of alcoholism, I believe. And I see it so often in both the alcoholic as well as the Al-Anon. 
And that's the inability to love ourselves and others. And I think that this is really what the 12 steps is all about, is learning how to love one another, you know. I, I've had some wonderful, wonderful experiences. I talk about my wife being the best teacher I've ever had in my life. The lessons that she has taught me, I wouldn't take a million dollars for. And nor would I go through them again for a million dollars. <laughs> but she's my teacher. I, I was talking to somebody, I think, about leaving her husband. And uh, I said, well, uh, why do you want to leave in the middle of the semester and merely pick up another teacher and have to start the whole thing all over again, you know? <laughs> so I think there's some lessons here. Uh, I happened to... Uh, well, I was talking to a person before the meeting here about an incident that happened a number of years ago uh, that this program has taught my wife and I that we can be separate in our togetherness, if you understand what I'm talking about. And uh, we'd rented a, rented a condo over in Hawaii for a month, and I had some Al-Anon commitments to take care of, and Goldine went on over to Hawaii. And uh, the, the phone rang, and a woman called who was on the program, and... Uh, we were talking, and I mentioned Goldine's over in Hawaii, and she said, would you miss her? I said, no, I don't miss her. So you better not tell her that. I said, well, you don't seem to understand. See, if I missed her, it would mean that my life at this instant was lacking in something. And generally, my life is absolutely complete when I'm into the now, aware that I'm in the now, so I don't miss or need anything at that instant. So this woman understood a uh, short time later, I think it was that same day, the phone rang, and there was this woman's voice on the phone. I finally I said, and who is this? She says, well, this is your wife, Goldine. And I thought, oh, my God, I didn't even recognize her voice. <laughs> but I told her what ha the conversation I'd had with that lady. She says, I don't miss you either. <laughs> that she was over there in Hawaii doing those things that she needed to do at that particular time. And this is really what the program is, because prior to the program, we had that great dependency the need for one another, the need to be needed, that, uh, uh, that, that each one had to support the other person. Now, let me be the first to explain that I did not stay with my wife because I was a noble person. I stayed in that marriage because I was a coward. And let me explain. Uh, when I was a teenager, my uh, parents separated and divorced. And I didn't really realize the traumatic impact that had on me until I was 40 years of age when I took an inventory in Al-Anon, you know. I had been around churches and religion, primarily from a social standpoint. I didn't understand what that man up there in that pulpit was talking about. I didn't even try to, uh, probably I didn't even listen. But uh, when my parents separated, I remember praying to a God I didn't know anything about, believe in, trust, etc., etc., that our family would get back together, and that family, our family never got back together. I concluded from that, and I remember that, that God plays favorites. He answered your prayers, but not mine. And he had something against me, and et cetera, and et cetera. So I turned my dial off on this God bet, except an interesting thing uh, occurred. I, during the uh, World War II, I was a Navy pilot on a carrier, flying off carriers uh, in combat. And they would have little... Uh, the chaplain to get the people together, and I thought, uh, you know, how hypocritic for me to go there, to sit there, to be, quote, saved, whatever that might mean, uh, when all my life I had never believed in this. So I never did sit in on a, any of those sessions. 
But when I came back aboard the carrier, I'd always say to a God I didn't believe in, trust, no, or anything like that. I'd say, thank you, God, <laughs> you know. But uh, uh, in addition to my, when I was a teenager, in addition to my realizing that uh, God played favorites, somewhere or other I instilled within myself unknowingly that I was not going to have a marriage like my parents. Now, I didn't at any point say that or think it or anything like that, but I, apparently I put it down into my subconscious because until I came into Al-Anon, as far as I know, I never criticized my wife to another human being in public. You see, what I needed her for was to validate me. Because of my lack of self-worth, I needed her to validate me. So if I ever, and, and I needed, the basis of my happiness was a successful marriage. So I needed her to give me that which I felt was my happiness. So if I ever badmouthed her in any manner, they would know ours is not a happy marriage, you see. So I needed her to validate me. Um, my wife and I uh, were married. Uh, I was going through flight training down at Corpus Christi, Texas, and uh, I was a, a cadet. Cadets were not supposed to be married. Couldn't get in the program being married. If you ever found out that you were married as a cadet, it was automatic washout. And I'd met Goldine about a year before when I was going through some uh, training up in Nebraska, and she came down to visit me. And we were having a party one night with a bottle of gin with another couple who on the sly had gotten married. And they thought marriage is a pretty good deal, you know. So uh, they said, we ought to get married. So we thought maybe we ought to get married, you know. This other woman worked for a judge. She called the judge on a Saturday night said that we wanted to get married. The judge said he would go down to the courthouse the next day, make arrangements, get a license, would find a minister, and sure enough, Sunday morning we got married. And I had to be back to base that night, and eight days later, had another day off. And uh, I always like to tell that story to tell you the power of sex and alcohol. You put those two things together, and anything and everything can happen, you know. Uh, Goldine used to always say that when she drank, Everything seemed like a good idea. <laughs> but we were a couple of young kids, and we had life by the tail, and we were going to live it to its fullest, and uh, didn't know anything about anything, uh, except that we, uh, every time I had a day off or a night off, we'd buy a bottle, go out to a honky-tonk, and we'd dance and have fun, and uh, no big deals, you know. But uh, later on, you know, uh, I was a... Navy officer who always should have a lady then as a wife, and sometimes she didn't act real ladylike. And I'd have to caution her verbally, and she would straighten up. Uh, they talk about crossing the invisible line from social drinking to uh, alcoholic drinking, and I think for her is when she stopped minding me. <laughs> she crossed that. She crossed that invisible line, and I think that's when I became a candidate for Al-Anon and became an Al-Anonic. Now, we don't use that word Al-Anonic, but I, I describe it as the neurotic compulsion to stop the drinking of a person who has the neurotic compulsion to drink. <laughs> and this is really what took, started taking place. Now, the, the words didn't seem to straighten her out. So in social situations, when she wasn't acting like a lady, I started using my elbow, nobody looking, and I'd pinch her. <laughs> to get her attention. A couple of times I hit her. And this was all for her own good, by the way. Uh, 
And I could be in this social situation with a big smile on my face with just seething with what she was doing and going on, you know. And I'd get her in the car and I'd really get after her, you know, this verbal uh, barrage at her. But I remember uh, we were living in Long Beach after I got out uh, of the service during, after the Korean War. And at that time, by that time, she had become a daily drinker. And uh, I, I remember used to... Uh, uh, have these verbal barrages in, in the car, but I'd park in front of the house where the neighbors could hear. I'd be the perfect gentleman getting her into the house. Close the door, see that the windows are closed, and then back at her again, you know. And uh, this, this became a <coughs> rather, rather common thing. Well, in civilian life, I had to go back to work. In the Navy, I, well, I'll just leave it like that. <laughs> Uh, but uh, every Friday night we'd kind of relax. And there was a little cocktail place in the steakhouse up the street a ways, and we used to go up there on a Friday night to kind of relax. And, and it always ended up the same way. We'd always end up at 2 o'clock when the bar was closing, in the bar, fighting, and the bartender says the bar's closing, time to go home. And I'd look in the billfold the next day, and a large part of the paycheck was gone. And one time I said, we're not going to do that anymore because you're always getting so much trouble. Goldine says, well, let's go up there, have one drink, eat dinner, come home. That sounded pretty reasonable, you know. So uh, we went up there and had a vodka martini, and then they brought the Roquefort salad, and I was watching her, and it was all over her face and all over her blouse and all over the table. And I thought, how on one martini could she do that? <laughs> and then after dinner, she says, let's have one after dinner drink. Well, that sounded reasonable. Well, at 2 o'clock, we were fighting, and the bartender was telling us to go home. And I thought, how'd that happen? How did that happen? And it was the uh, next day or so, I, I ran into a hidden bottle. It had never occurred to me that she had been drinking all the time that she was getting ready to go out, you know. But I remember taking that bottle, setting up on the kitchen counter, and I started asking al questions. Why do you do it? And I got alcoholic answers. I don't know. And I say, you do too know. And she says, I don't know. And this would lead us into meaningful discussions. <laughs> and uh, You see, she was telling me the truth. She didn't know at that time she was an alcoholic. But I want some sort of an explanation. And anything she said, I would refute it and argue against it, you know. But... Uh, Lots of times, we, we had lots of discussions like that. And many times, she had to get the last word in, I had to get the last word in, and you know where that one goes. So many times I'd tell her, if you're going to be like that, then get out. And she'd get in the car, drive around the block, come back, promise uh, to uh, not do those things anymore. We'd kiss and make up, and live happily ever after. And then next week, next month, same thing. Get out, get out. Of course, if she was going too long, I'd get in the other car and go try to find her. What was she up to? <laughs> At times, I would uh, punish her. I wouldn't speak to her. And we could go two, three, four days without word one spoken. I remember times we'd walk down the hallway and bump shoulders. We wouldn't even acknowledge it or say anything, you know. And she sometimes says those are the happiest days of her life. <laughs> <laughs> I always like to point out that we had a normal alcoholic home. <laughs> Uh, we went through all of the emotional experiences that anybody in this room has ever gone through. The names might be different, the places might be different, but the emotional experiences are all the same. And the anger that started swelling up within me was uh, just uh, uh, horrific, you know. Um, my wife, we had a 
a couple next door that uh, we used to have a lot of parties with, do a lot of drinking with, and uh, uh, buy a bottle for a Saturday night, and uh, I'd, I'd say, let's save half this for next week. And I couldn't understand why Goldie, how Goldine and uh, Frank uh, had to finish that bottle up. But see, one nice thing about the Al-Anon program is I do not have to understand why an alcoholic drinks. It's impossible for me to understand how, why an alcoholic drinks without my being an alcoholic, and I am not. I was a heavy drinker, but I didn't have the allergy. Uh, and, and in this program here, see, understanding is an intellectual thing. And this program is not an intellectual program. This is a spiritual program. And I think the spirituality of the program comes through the action of acceptance. Back in 1952, the steps were written, the 12 steps to acceptance. Not recovery, but to acceptance. Because acceptance is a spiritual act. Understanding is an intellectual act. See, I can read all of the literature that Al-Anon has. I can listen to all the tapes, go to all of the lectures, etc., etc. Nothing will happen to me except I'll get a better grade if I'm taking a course in alcoholism. It will not in any manner change my life. The only way that, it will change, that I can change my life through Al-Anon is to take those principles that they talk about and try to inculcate them into my life and my behavior to transfer it from my head down to here. And that's the, uh, uh, what, what the program is. Uh, Frank next door got on the AA program. And my wife started getting in a little trouble with her uh, drinking, and she thought maybe she should go to AA. Now, I remember once she asked me, she's talking about her drinking, and I had to answer for her. I said, don't drink so much. Don't drink so much. See, I could do that. I could drink. I could stop in the middle of a drink. She could not, and I couldn't understand that. She said, so don't drink so much. And then when she started talking about going to Alcoholics Anonymous, I remember saying, I'm not going to let her be an alcoholic. I'm not going to let her be an alcoholic. But I didn't know what an alcoholic was. But I'm not going to let her be one. And uh, then when she started talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, my God, that was somebody who slept on the gutter with a bottle. And I was not going to let her go be an alcoholic. But anyway, she started going to Alcoholics Anonymous with Frank. Now, Frank's been a good friend of mine almost 45 years, but he wasn't that good a friend where he could be taking my wife out at night. <laughs> That might tell you a little bit about my trust, my fears, and also my behavior. So I lived by double standard, you see. And uh, uh, Goldine went to AA for, for a while, or a couple of months, and she stopped her drinking. And then she heard something from Alcoholics Anonymous. That was, hey, you have total abstinence from alcohol. She went there to learn to control her, her drinking. And when she found out that they talked about no drinking at all, uh, she came back and started drinking because drinking was her life. Alcohol gave her a reason to live, you see. So uh, she went back to her drinking. <clears throat> and uh, the anger within me started getting stronger and stronger. I was mad angry at her, or angry at the kids, I was angry at life, my job, everything. That just, uh, uh, I used to think that alcoholism caused the anger, and I realized, no, alcoholism was the catalyst that brought out the anger. I've come to realize that anger is merely a feeling of insecurity within myself and a feeling of being threatened by something outside. So anger then for me is merely lashing back at that threat. And uh, uh, the program has given me a sense of security. 
So rarely do I become angry anymore. Uh, God gives me uh, refresher courses once in a while, keep me honest, <laughs> you know. But uh, uh, I, I was just in a rage all the time. Uh, I was dealing with the public, and I could be, uh, and you know, I had this obsession about her, you know, what's she doing, where's she at, and who's she with, and all this thing. Uh, see, the obsession of an Al-Anon is as strong as the obsession of an alcoholic. The only thing is that alcoholics deal with liquids and we deal with people. And that's the only difference. An obsession is an obsession. Uh, I've, I've always believed that an obsession is merely a replacement for God. That's all it is. A, a means of trying to find uh, a, a form of happiness, or the source of our happiness. But uh, uh, I could be sitting in an interview and uh, wondering, you know, where's she at? What's she doing? Has she been drinking today? And uh, I could become angry at the person I was trying to, I was an insurance adjuster. You, you can't settle too many claims if you get the person you're trying to settle a claim with angry at you, you know. And uh, uh, this is what would happen because I was wondering about her. This was the mental obsession. And I could be driving down the freeway, not paying attention to my driving, but remember last night and what's it going to be like tonight when I get home. And, we're, and this was the mental obsession. So uh, I had reached a point where I just wanted to get out. I didn't know what I wanted to get out of. I just wanted to get out of the mess, whatever the mess was. I, didn't even, I couldn't even identify the mess. And I was about ready to quit a job I had been at for about 10 years. And uh, one of the, I was working for a two-man partnership. I was the third man. And uh, 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 one of them found out I was about ready to quit. I had nothing to go to. I was just going to quit. And uh, he said, where do you want to go? And we'll, we'll open up an office there. And that's how we got to Riverside, California. He grubstaked us. Why? I don't know, but apparently necessary. I, I've had two spiritual awakenings in this program, two. The, the 12 steps promises that, if we work the steps. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. It says, if I work those steps, I will have a spiritual awakening. I didn't know what that was. For a long time, many years. So one morning I woke up, Following, uh, I mean, after some meditation, and it hit me so simply. So the program is so simple that we complicated people, uh, you know, we have to work through the complexity to find the simplicity of, of life, you know. But the simplicity of it was something that if you hear the words from my head to your head, you'll miss the whole point. But if you hear it from my heart to your heart, you'll understand. And the simplicity of it, which was my spiritual awakening, is that everything is okay. Everything is okay. Uh, now, I may not understand that for 10 years. I may not understand it for 20 minutes. But every experience in my life is okay. God seems to know what he's doing most of the time. <laughs> uh, uh, so I can look back in any experience that I have had in my life and realize, hey, it was okay. It was, ab it was absolutely necessary. The second experience of uh, awakening, which I had years later, came also in the same manner to me. And that was that every experience is a spiritual experience. Everything fits. Nothing extraneous. Nothing that is a, quote, coincidence out here. Everything seems to fit. I may not understand or know how it fits at the time. I may not understand and know why I'm in Nashville today. I don't know. 
maybe 10 years from now I'll understand. But I'm not here by accident. You're not here by accident. Some way or other, everything fits in this universe here. But anyway, it was apparently necessary for me to get to Riverside. Now, an interesting point that occurred is that we had about three or four months advance notice before moving to Riverside, and my wife said, get off my back, leave me alone. When we get to Riverside, I'll stop the drinking. And we had about three or four months. We got to Riverside. She started drinking again. Nothing had changed except the hiding places. It's the only thing that changed. But in my inventory in Al-Anon, I ran across this thought. Why is it? See, I, I remember everything except those three or four months before we moved to Riverside. Why is it I don't remember those three or four months? I always point out, you know, you always give the Al-Anon speaker more time because we remember more. <laughs> we remember everything, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, but I, I was wondering, why didn't I remember those three or four months? Well, because she promised that when we got to Riverside, she would stop her drinking, and I was living on that promise. Then I got to thinking, and sometimes this is dangerous. What is it in AA? They say, go to a lot of meetings, don't drink between meetings, and al go to a lot of meetings and don't think between meetings, you know. But uh, I got to thinking uh, that why is it that we in al believe the, the promise of the alcoholic? I believe the alcoholic, when they make the promise, want to keep the promise, but due to the nature of the illness, they cannot. But why do we believe the promise? For me, it was this. I had nothing else to believe in. The basis of my happiness was a successful marriage, dependent upon my wife. So regardless of how often she disappointed me, I had to go back and say, this time it's going to be different, because I had no spiritual beliefs. I had nothing to believe in that was higher than a successful marriage. And sometimes you'll find... Uh, that the basis of a happiness is for the alcoholic, of course, is alcohol, and, and maybe it's materialism, or large amount of money, or a house on the hill, or cars, or political positions, etc., etc. All of these ultimately will fail us for our happiness. Now, I had no spiritual belief at the time, so I always had to come back. So the only thing that changed was uh, different uh, hiding places. I ended up being a bottle marker. I don't, I'm sure none of you ever marked bottles, but I'd find that bottle put a mark there, come home in the evening, put another mark, I could tell how much she drank. I thought it was my responsibility, you know. Uh, after a while in Riverside, Goldine got in, started getting in some trouble, and she recognized that maybe she should go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started going to AA speaker meetings with her. And I could really identify between that speaker and her. And I'd give her the Al-Anon nudge. <laughs> and on the way home, on the way home, I'd go through that uh, speaker's talk with all these important points that she should remember. <laughs> and she'd sit in the corner of the car with this go-to-hell type of a look, you know, and next day she'd be drunk, and I couldn't understand it, you know. Uh, time went on, and we were in Riverside about a year when I bought out the interest of that business and decided to build an office under the hole, work for my home. And Goldine said, well, the reason that she drank is she had never had any responsibility. She'd always been a housewife. That made sense. So we put her on as a secretary. And all we got out of that, instead of her being a drunken housewife, she was a drunken secretary. <laughs> Nothing had changed. <laughs> she, uh, she talked about how sick I was. I kept her for a year. You know. <laughs> she had her own paycheck. Uh, I was out of the office a large part of the time. Uh, and uh, 
I'd come home uh, night after night, and there she was, sleeping in the chair. I didn't even recognize she was passed on. We got our business mostly by telephone assignments over the telephone. And I'd say, you know, I'd look at this sheet, and I said, well, what does this say? She said, I don't know. She was a blackout drinker. And, and uh, we'd, we'd say, well, what does that mean? She said, I don't know. Well, what's this telephone? I don't know, you know. Uh, and uh, things, things were really a mess, really a mess. We had a uh, daughter, a 16-year-old daughter, had two sons and a daughter. And the daughter was 16 years old, and she was a rebellious girl, so I was going to make her into a lady. <laughs> and one time I told her, I said, you start minding me, you're going to have to get out. And uh, I, later that evening, I saw her packing a small grip, and she started walking out of the house. But I knew in my smugness that she'd be back. She needed Dad, you know. And she didn't come back. So I thought I'd better go find that kid and put some sense into her. And I went looking for her, and I found her in a phone booth down by the freeway. And I went up to her, and I said, Barb, if you start minding me, you can come home. And she looked me right square in the eye, and she said, Dad, I'm not coming home. I didn't know what to do. See, this is the danger of self-righteousness. I'm probably the only self-righteous person in the room here today, aren't I? <laughs> See, I could not be accountable at all for me. I could always put it in terms of you and her and the world and et cetera, and et cetera. Uh, I didn't know that I'd done anything wrong. If I had, I'm, I'm sure I didn't have the courage to say, hey, I'm sorry. Let's see if we can try it again. I didn't know what to do, and I left her there. And I remember going back home, and I still feel that feeling that, uh, you know, everything that we tried to accomplish in 21, 22 years of marriage is going down the drain, and the daughter was running away, the household breaking up, you know. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Barb. She went down to San Pedro near uh, Los Angeles and uh, stayed with friends, graduated from high school. By this time, I was in the program. I made verbal amends to her. My true amends, incidentally, for any of those of you who may owe amends to your teenagers or your children, did not come verbally by talking to her. For me, it came about by my becoming an Alateen sponsor. It had directly nothing to do with my daughter. It had to do with teenage people. Uh, this was how God removed my guilt regarding a daughter, by getting me involved in service as an Alateen sponsor. But anyway, <coughs> Barbara dating a young man who drank a little bit, she married him, and sure enough, an alcoholic. And uh, after about 10 years of this marriage, some violence started. And one time Barb called and she said, uh, Dad, can I come home? Fortunately, I had enough Al-Anon within me and understanding of Al-Anon when I realized what she was trying to do. She was trying once more to run from alcoholism. And I refused her permission to come home to live. I said, you can come home for a visit, but you can't come home to live because I recognized she was running once more from alcoholism. She ran from alcoholism in the home. She had absolutely no self-worth, no spiritual values. And by my refusing to allow her to come home, she started going to Al-Anon. And for years, we had talked to her about going to Al-Anon, but no, she didn't need it. But in Al-Anon, she got her self-worth. She got her spiritual values. The marriage didn't last, which is okay. But she didn't run from the marriage. She went to something else. And anything that I've ever experienced in life, I have those two things. Am I running from it or am I going to something? If I'm running from it, I better stay in it and transcend it and walk through it. Uh, and, and this is really what, uh, what Barb had to do. Uh, 
I see this happen a lot of times. And, uh, I, I, you know, we talk about alcoholism being a spiritual illness. Have you ever thought that maybe it is a beneficent illness? You suppose that uh, it is something a loving God gives to us for a specific reason to change our life around, uh, to find a new way of living? Maybe alcoholism is not the devastating thing that we put that we 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 think, but maybe it's that prodding. It's a, it's the old story, you know, of the of the guy who was hitting the, his donkey over the head with a two before. He said, "How come you're doing that?" So I'm trying to get his attention. You suppose God is trying to get our attention through the disease of alcoholism? You know. But anyway, uh, uh, Barb remarried, and she's very very happy, very very secure person, a very loving person. Who incidentally has four children. One of them uh, uh, was on heroin. Hopefully he's off now. The other one blew his mind on drugs. So the illness still goes through the, the generations here. Uh, but coming back to what happened, one, one night Goldine did something that hurt the male ego. And, uh, you know, I, I've never been hurt in my life. My ego has just taken a tremendous beating, though. <laughs> I've discovered my ego is not my friend. Uh, not my friend at all. That causes all the problems, you know. But uh, the male, uh, she hurt the male ego. She did something that uh, uh, she had an affair, and I found out about it. She was passed out on the bed, and I was standing over her trying to figure out what should I do. Should I kill her, kill myself, or kill both of us? And I was trying to figure out some way I might kill her and get away with it without the use of gloves, like... Uh... <laughs> uh, that was uncalled for, wasn't it? You're not the jury. Uh, but uh, I, I found this to be true for me, that when I have a crazy thought, my higher power gives me something crazier to think about. And the reason I didn't kill her is what would the neighbors think? <laughs> they obviously would know ours was not a happy marriage. <laughs> About a month later, something similar happened, and this time I told her to get out. And she went down to Long Beach to stay with these uh, former next-door neighbors, and they gave her 24 hours of AA through tapes, meetings, and people passed through the house. And I was at home with two small boys trying to be the mother and the, and the father and the dishwasher and the lunch pack, uh, packer and all that stuff, feeling absolutely miserable, but enjoying it. <laughs> uh, that's a very, very deadly combination self-pity and martyrdom. Very, very deadly. Very deadly. But after about a week, Virginia called and said, Bob, why don't you come down and see if you can reconcile? And I went down and I laid down the ground rules of how she could get back in the house. They, since then, they, they wrote a pamphlet uh, and in it they said, you know, some of us are arrogant, smug, self-righteous, domineering. And whenever I hear that, I feel something go up the back of my spine. <laughs> you know. But that's the way I was. That's the way I was. And Goldine would have agreed to anything. She knew she would never take a drink. But that night, Virginia, the wife, said, Bob, had you ever thought of Alana? That's the way she put it. I had never consciously heard the word Alanon. But undoubtedly at AA meetings, the word Alanon must have been mentioned. But see, we hear what we need to hear when we need to hear it and not before. But I thought Alanon was something that would keep Goldine sober. So I agreed to go to a meeting. I went to a newcomer's meeting, and I walked in there, and they were all ladies, not a man there. And this is my life in Al-Anon. <laughs> and I could tell by looking at them that they didn't have my problem. Some of them were smiling. 
Some of them had sparkles in their eyes. And some of them then said that I could not stop my wife from drinking, and I knew I could. I just needed the right technique and the right program, and Al-Anon apparently was not it. So I was not impressed at all. But on the way home, Virginia said, Bob, before you make up your mind, try at least six meetings. And I said I would. Now, I was a people pleaser. I had made a commitment to go to six meetings. What would she think of me if I didn't go to six meetings? You know. But Goldine was not going to drink anymore. We went home to live happily ever after, and she started her drinking. But I started going to Al-Anon. The second meeting I went to, I met the first man in Al-Anon. And there weren't as many meetings there are now. You know, anymore, if you don't like the meeting, you're going to go across the street. There's another one. Well, back there then, we had to travel distances to get to meetings. And I went down to Orange County to go to my second meeting. I met the first man. And he apparently had not been around the, the meetings for a while. And I got there a little bit early, and the conversation was taking place. And I heard one lady ask him, and how is your wife? And he said, you know, she hasn't had a drink for six months. And I thought, well, what's he doing here? If his wife isn't drinking, why is he here? <laughs> and then he said the craziest thing that I'd ever heard up until that time. He said that people at work were bugging him. He had to come back to find some serenity. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> but this is what we hear in this program. We hear strange things that don't make any sense. But they're said by people with sparkles in their eyes and smiles on their face. Don't make any sense to me. But if we think about them long enough, we have what's called the uh-huh experience. <laughs> uh-huh, I get it. Now, for those of you who have never had an uh-huh experience, go back and read your literature again. You'll see it's been completely revised since the last time you read it. <laughs> <laughs> there are brand new thoughts. I happen to be a highlighter. And I'll read something, and I'll highlight this, and I'll go back a year later and highlight... Why did I highlight that instead of the next sentence and the whole book becomes highlighted you look at anybody's you look at anybody's AA book who's been around the program trying to really understand it you'll see that the whole book is highlighted the whole every sentence is highlighted but uh, that was one of the one of the things that uh, uh, that a gift that was given to me early anything that I have gone through has had a gift in it uh, this is why I always say that, that principle is revealed through personality, you know. It takes all the people in Al-Anon, all the people outside of Al-Anon, all the people in the world to carry the principle which I have to find so that I can be comfortable and live a, a meaningful life. Uh, another thing that was given to me, a gift, and that is if I went to an Al-Anon meeting, I felt better. I didn't know why I felt better, I just felt better. I had no explanation. And it seemed that the next day seemed to be better if I went to an Al-Anon meeting. So I started going to a lot of Al-Anon meetings. I was going to four or five, six meetings. Goldine was drinking. I was around Al-Anon about six weeks when uh, I developed great anger at Al-Anon. And I was probably as miserable at any time in my life after about six weeks. And I realized Al-Anon had made me miserable. The way I like to put it this way, that when you're miserable, don't know you're miserable, you're not nearly as miserable as when you're miserable and you know you're miserable. <laughs> Al-Anon had made me aware of how miserable I was feeling. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes do this in 12-step work. Make the person aware of how miserable they are. <laughs> and there's alternatives, you know. But uh, uh, I, uh, 
The thing that was making me miserable is that Al-Anon had taken that finger and it turned around. And I didn't want to look at myself. I wanted to blame you and the world and the weather and et cetera and et cetera. But Al-Anon, I used to do, to, uh, do a lot of, take a lot of fist steps in meetings about one, my one defect of character, my alcoholic wife. <laughs> she, was a, she was the only defect I had when I came to Al-Anon. But it's surprising how many defects Alan and I gave me after I uh, was around here a little while. But I had to get even. Alan and I made me miserable, so I had to get even. I went to a meeting over in San Bernardino. I don't think I'd ever been there before to tell Alan and I off. And I took up about half that meeting telling you people what you could do with this program, and my language has changed quite a bit since that day. And they just sat there and they smiled at me. And when I ran down, a woman looked me right square in the eye. She was sent from Seattle, Washington to change my life. She was there at two meetings. But she looked me right square in the eye and she said, Bob, you know now, and you have a choice. You can be miserable or you can work this program. And I didn't like that at all. But I have never, never forgotten it. I think that was when I took the third step, when I made the decision not to be miserable anymore. Uh, I'd like to repeat that. You have the choice. You can be miserable or you can work this program. Now, nothing happened overnight that was dramatic as far as I know. Nothing changed except I became teachable. I started to listen instead of argue. I started getting over what's called ego sclerosis. <laughs> the second defect that I ever recognized within myself was that of anger. Uh, I, I sometimes I hear meetings talking about justifiable anger. Uh, you know, there's, there's no anger that is justifiable. The, uh, uh, the results of anger is always the same. What was it that, that always develops into a resentment at least? Uh, somebody said uh, one time that a resentment is like taking poison, hoping it'll kill somebody else. <laughs> uh, but uh, the second defect of, of character I, I recognize was that of, uh, of, uh, of anger. And... Uh, I was listening to people talking about this higher power and God and all this stuff. didn't make any sense, except they had the smiles on their face and the sparkles in their eyes. And one time I did something. Most of my anger was verbal. My reaction to anger was verbal rather than physical. And uh, I was uh, watching people using this thing called God, you know. And I didn't want to be angry, you know. Uh, you see, I, I found this to be true, that I was not aware of my becoming anger, angry, so therefore there was no way I could handle, handle anger. Same way with the alcoholic. Don't ever criticize an alcoholic who doesn't understand it's the first drink to get some drunk. Same way with me. I had to become aware of my anger. So uh, it was about 29 years ago this fall, I said, God, don't let me be angry today. And at the end of the day, I looked back and I had not been angry. Now, that was a miracle because I was daily angry. And I did that for a whole week and for a whole week I was not angry. And that was a miracle in my life. Something was working. <coughs> and uh, the example I always use involves a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, a fellow by the name of John, who I detested and he felt the same way about me, although he shouldn't have because I was a pretty good guy, wasn't I? <laughs> but... Uh, uh, 
every time I thought about John, I'd get a knot in my stomach, and he had had a heart attack, and I used to pray for something a little bit more serious than what he had had, and I wanted to get a doll and put pins in it. And a person said one time, why don't you pray for John? I said, why should I pray for John? He said, do you like the knot in your stomach? I said, no, I don't like the knot in my stomach. He said, we better pray for him. I said, I'll be damned if I will. But time went on, and that knot became more unbearable than praying for John. So one day I started saying, God bless that son of a bitch. God bless that son of a bitch. And uh, after a while, the SOB dropped away, and I could sincerely say, God bless him, God bless him, God bless him. And you know, John started to change. <laughs> and I went up to John one time, and I said, John, I sure have to pray a lot for you. And he says, Bob, I have to pray a lot for you, too. <laughs> now, the principle of that is brought out in the opening of the Al-Anon literature, or, or the opening meaning. It talks about a change of attitude and spiritual health. You put those two ideas together, I cannot change my attitude without spiritual help. And that's what John and I did. We prayed for one another, and we had some spiritual help, and the result was what had happened uh, there. A, a man a uh, hundred years ago said that love is the essence, beauty is the manifestation. Love is the force, beauty is the result. John turned into a beautiful person for me. He may still be an SOB to a lot of other people. I don't know. But not for me. Let me point out something here. There's a lot of beautiful people here. Who creates your beauty? I do. For me. It's my perception of you that creates your beauty for me. You can help a lot, but it's my final decision, isn't it? And this is pointed out in, on the page October 4 of the One Day at a Time book down at the bottom. When I first read that, I thought that's the biggest lie ever put in print. And I was going to write WSO to have them take it out. But what it says, what it says is if I work the fourth through the tenth step, the change in me will be reflected in every person who crosses my path. Powerful. Most powerful thing in human relations I have ever read. That when I change... You change. And the fourth through the tenth step is to change me. And as a result of my changing, the whole world has changed for me. A lot of people you say, you just work the first three steps every day, every day, every day. No, no. The nitty-gritty of it is for the fourth through the tenth step. But I started seeing that, 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 that this program, that the ideas that were being presented to me in Al-Anon uh, were valid and they were workable and they were some way or other bringing something into my life. I didn't quite understand what. Um, early in Al Anon, I started uh, uh, mentioning, uh, uh, I mean, I, I read the uh, steps, I memorized them, and generally, and a newcomer would come in, I could explain to that person, uh, you know, you can't stop that person from drinking. And I'd leave that meeting, I'd think, I wonder if Goldine's been drinking. I wonder how much she's been drinking. I'd get down on my hands and knees and find the bottle, put another mark, all the time thinking I was working the Al-Anon program. Now, I've come to this realization in this program, that I cannot work the steps until the steps have been presented to me in an experience. And the experience that God set up for me was this. We had a place down in Ensenada, Mexico that we used to go to, uh, and Goldie not had anything to drink for several weeks. And we went down there, Went over to some friend's place, and the first thing they did is they poured out a drink for her and a drink for me. 
Her drink was sitting this close to me. And up until that time, I would have said, I'm sorry, she's not drinking, thank you. Or maybe I would have drank it myself, but I had protected her from alcohol. But something, and I say something with a capital S, made me aware that that was her choice on that drink, not mine. And I sat back to see what was going to take place. Now, the best way I can describe it, it's almost like I was at an athletic event watching two teams play, not, not rooting for either side, but interested in the play. Is the drink going to win? Is she going to win? And I saw on, the, on her face that she was struggling, trying not to take that drink. Finally, she reached over, she picked up that drink, and she drank it. At that instant, something started down in the pit of my stomach, went out the top of my head in a flash. And I can still realize it. And I didn't know what it was for several months. I realized that was when I took the first step, or better, when the first step was given to me by the grace of God. I believe, in my opinion, the first step is a gift from God. It is not something that I take. It is something that I receive from a giver. Because I was free. From then, I never tried to stop her from drinking. I was free of my obsession. I had finally experienced the first step. Uh, also, I put this in terms of what we call release or detachment in Al-Anon. I had backed off physically. I was not in any manner physically trying to prevent it. Emotionally, I was not involved. Oh my God, I hope she doesn't. What will happen, et cetera, et cetera. Or mentally, I was an observer of an experience which for me makes me realize this, that when I back off, something has to come in. And I can prevent, I can get involved in situations in people's lives and other things by my physical beingness, by my feeling and emotions, and by my thinking, which prevents for me a higher power of goodness from coming into that event. And so I was, I was then free. I could allow her to drink herself to death if this is what she chose to do. And she almost chose to do that. Um, there, was, uh, there, there was times when the, when the bottle would come out. I, uh, I, would, uh, I remember one time walking in the kitchen. There she was in the morning drinking from her vodka, vodka bottle, warm vodka. I thought if she wants to drink herself to death, that's her choice, you know. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there's one incident when the members of AA present, I always like to tell this, also when my wife is present, which she isn't today, but uh, there was, Alan and I taught me it took two to have an argument. If I kept my mouth shut, there wouldn't be an argument. Draws a lot of blood, but it works. <laughs> when you bite down your lips and tongue. But one night, Goldine wanted to have an argument. And I was trying to read my Al Anon book. And she was yak, 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 yak. And boy, I wanted to hit her and backhand her. And and uh, the little boy said, read your book, read your book, read your book. And all it was a massive blast, black print there. And uh, finally she let up and she went back down to the bedroom. And pretty soon she came walking by and she says, at least I'm going to die beautiful. And look over there, there she was in a negligee. She walked out of the kitchen and I heard her fumbling around in the medicine cabinet. I thought, oh my God, she's going to kill herself. The little boy said, read your book, read your book, read your book. <laughs> And she went back down to the bedroom and thoughts started going through my head. Uh, and uh, finally a thought came and lodged. Try this on sometimes. We do not think the thought, we only think about the thought. But a thought came and lodged. Here a person was dying down there, I thought. And human beings are put in particular situations to save human lives. And I remembered an old home remedy. 
I got a glass of water, I got a bar of soap, and I got a bucket. And I went down, and she was passed out in the bed, and I propped her up, I poured this glass of soapy water down her throat, put my two fingers in her throat, and her head in the bucket, and every time my fingers came out, she said, Bob, Bob, I didn't take anything, I didn't take anything. <laughs> that was the last time she ever threatened suicide. <laughs> Now, for those alcoholics here who plan to go out and do some more drinking, that is not in our literature as a technique, so you don't have to worry about that. I was going to a lot of meetings, and uh, at one meeting I was complaining about this drunken secretary I had, and a wise owl, and I said, well, if she was other than your wife, would you keep her? I said, of course not. End of conversation, but not the end of the thought. And I realized I could live in this situation. By then, I was going to a lot of meetings. I was a workaholic. I was trying to stay away from home as much as possible. It was just, uh, you know, four people living under the same roof. There was not a family at all. And uh, I could live there, you know, but I thought there's something more to life than what I'm experiencing. So one time, I sat her down, and I said, I don't care whether you drink, but not in this house. And if you're going to drink, you're going to have to get out. And with that, I fired her. And I went about my business. That was 29 years ago this weekend. <laughs> She's uh, celebrating her birthday this weekend. And uh, she back in Riverside, and I'm here where both of us are supposed to be, you know. But uh, uh, that's when she stopped her drinking. What happened spiritually? This is a spiritual program. It's not a psychological program. It's not a behavior program. Uh, behavior modification program. It is a spiritual program dealing with spiritual energies, however you want to define that. The words I used were pretty much the same that I kicked her out, uh, that, that I used to kick her out of the house many times before, except this time my motive was different. I didn't care whether she drank, not in the house because we had the kids. Years later, she said, Bob, you know, that was half my house that you were kicking me out of. And I said, yeah, but God wouldn't let you know at the time, would he? <laughs> <laughs> but what happened, from my viewpoint, or from me, is that I had reestablished my priorities. No longer was the marriage the basis of my happiness. But I was willing to walk through the spiritual pride of letting relatives, friends, and neighbors know that ours was not a successful marriage. Now, where the priority is on, a, on our marriage, where it is now on a scale of 1 to 10, I don't know. I don't know. But the basis of my happiness is now my emotional, uh, my emotional comfortableness, which I define as a state of love, which is my relationship with God. When I have this feeling of love, I'm in tune with God. When my defects of character are acting, that is when my, or, or, or when I'm not loving, that's when the defects of character come forth and I start separating, separating myself from, from God. But my real understanding of what took place came about when I read the Bible a couple of years later from cover to cover, and I don't understand 99% of it, but I ran across the story of, of Abraham and his oldest son. The oldest son was the apple of his eye. And uh, God said, sacrifice your son for me. And Abraham became willing to do so. Because of his willingness to do so, he didn't have to do so. I read that and said that was a key. 
I had become willing to give up the marriage, and as a result, I haven't had to give up the marriage. You see? So no longer is the marriage the number one priority. Now, uh, my relationship with God then is the number one priority. Well, how do I maintain that? Through the Al-Anon program. Because it's through the Al-Anon program that I can maintain and identify and work with emotional uncomfortablenesses, which is my separation from God. So this is why I put Al-Anon number one in my, uh, in my life. It is, has, it is has giving me and has given me everything I could possibly hope for. And this is why I'm sure that Goldine puts AA as her number one priority. As a result of that, we haven't had an argument in 28 and a half years. Somebody says, that must be awful. <laughs> I'm not trying to say we agree all the time. But we don't have to argue about it. She has the right to her opinion. I have the right to my opinion. Sometimes we're together. Sometimes we're separated. Uh, and we have good times together. And we have good times apart. I remember I was sharing in a meeting one time about the beautiful weekend that she, uh, she and I had. I was up in the mountains backpacking. She was home sewing. <laughs> okay? So we have that as a relationship. Uh, we can live happily ever after. Well, one of the things that I had when she got sober, I still had this uh, feeling towards her, this uh, uh, hate and everything like that. And I realized I was the one with the knot in my stomach. So I said a little simple prayer, which I realized later that was the seventh prayer, or seventh step, uh, really my defect of character. I said, God, teach me to love her as she is. And she started to change. She's a very, very beautiful person in my life. She's been delegate out there. Uh, uh, nominated for trustee on three occasions, uh, chairman of the central office, very respected member of Alcoholics Anonymous who no longer needs me. But I don't need her to need me. And that's the point. That's the point. You see, we don't have that clinging togetherness anymore. So we're going to live happily ever after. And then uh, a, uh, 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 our youngest son was five years of age when the program came into the house. At ten and a half, he voluntarily wanted to go to Alateen. And he was now in about six years. The program does not prevent alcoholism. And when he was 15, 16, he started his drinking. He had gone through the pot uh, process. I remember one time uh, I caught him smoking pot. Uh, I asked him to do some work around the yard and he did it. I gave him $5 and 30 seconds later I saw him trading his $5 for a little box that a neighbor boy gave him. And I went out and I took it and it was marijuana. And I gave him the lecture series. <laughs> and on the way, I, I put that in the car, and during the day, I started thinking about it. He had earned his $5. He had a right to spend his $5. And I went back, and I gave it back to him that evening. I said, I did not have the right to take that from you, but I don't want to ever see you smoking on the premises. Because if you do, then out, out, we're going to get rid of you. I mean, we're going to have you, have you leave. As far as I know, he always maintained that. And I don't know whether he stopped his pot smoking or not, but I became free by my, what I did of my being bothered by what he was doing. Uh, and then at age uh, 15 or 16, he started his drinking. And he was a pass-out drinker. Uh, I, I, and when he passed out, his arms would flop out and his eyes would stay open and, and eyeballs go up the top. You see the whites of his eyes there. And he looked like he's dead, honestly. And I'd come home at night, and there he was, and go in and say, look at your son. <laughs> and I would, uh, I would grit my teeth and clench my fist, and I'd go in there, and I'd still give him the same lecture series I used to give uh, Goldine. And I'd say, Bob, get hold of your program, get hold of your program. So I let it loose, you know. 
And this went on for quite a while, many times. And uh, uh, I was taking a class one time in metaphysics. Now, metaphysics is the idea that our mind is creative, that we can lock it in there, we can create. Uh, everything starts up here. And if I can believe it, it comes true. And I had to prove that to myself uh, uh, in a class. And uh, I knew by then I did not have the right to pray for Steve's sobriety. That was between he and God. But I felt I had a right to pray for his serenity, which was to reestablish a connection between he and God. So I used Steve as a subject matter for this metaphysical thing of proving that metaphysics works or the mind works. And I wrote this thing out on paper about his peace of mind and, and et cetera, and I said it, read it over and over and over again. Finally, it locked in from here to here. I knew that prayer was answered. See, prayers are always answered in advance up here in the head. <laughs> and I went home, he was all bombed out, and I couldn't understand. I couldn't understand that. I knew my prayer had been answered, but here he was all bombed out. And the next morning I woke up laughing because I realized he was at peace. <laughs> you want to be careful what you pray for. So uh, I, I was laughing and I said, God, help me to understand. Just a simple under, uh, prayer. See, my seventh step, my defect of character was a lack of understanding. So I, many times I said, God, help me to understand, which is the seventh step for me. And I, opened the, I picked up a book on the dresser that I had not opened in over a year, opened it at random, and it said generally, now that you messed everything up, why don't you let me do it? I said, okay, God, he's yours. So uh, I came home uh, one other time, and uh, he was all bombed on. And I went in to the bedroom. I did not have any clenched teeth or fists. I sat down on the edge of the bed, and I took his hand, and I said, Steve, how are you doing? Because I had a great realization, and I used the term realization in knowing that I know, not thinking that I know. I knew I knew. I realized Steve suffered from a disease called alcoholism, and I'm powerless over it. You see, with my wife, I had never looked at her as suffering from an illness. It took my son's experience to teach me that alcoholism is an illness. Uh, that realization that I realized Steve was sick. He suffered from a disease of alcoholism and I can't help him. And I'm powerless over him. And from that time until his death, I never tried to stop him from drinking. I allowed then something that happened. Many of you uh, people uh, here might have uh, 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 children. Uh, you will find that triangles are created. And we had a triangle of... I should treat him this way, or that we should treat him this way, and my wife said, no, we should treat him this way. In other words, a conflict between the two of us. So what I did is I backed off, and I said, okay, you have the relationship with Steve, and I'll back you up in everything you do to, to, do, to break that triangle. And uh, ultimately, uh, Steve had been sentenced to AA a couple of times. He wrecked three cars in and out of jail. A typical alcoholic, typical alcoholic. And so finally, it was bothering his golden sobriety. And one... Uh, Christmas Eve, Steve rolled a car, and uh, we were going to have the family in the next day, and uh, it devastated Goldine, and she's told Steve that if you ever drink again, you're going to have to leave the house. And six months later, he realized he was not an alcoholic, and he started his drinking again, so he was asked to leave the house, and I backed my wife up 100% on that. <laughs> but something happened to me. I realized, how's he going to survive? He was in his early 20s by then. How's he going to survive out there in the street? You know, he, in his job, menial jobs, he'd get paid on Friday and be broke by Saturday morning. You know, I don't know how they get along, but they live out there on the street some way or other. But uh, 
I realized I didn't have as much faith as what I thought. So I took that little pamphlet that we have on detachment, and I read that every morning as part of my meditation for about two months, until finally it went from here to here, and I became free, and I knew that God would look after Steve. Uh, he got into a lot of trouble with the law. He went down to Long Beach to live, and uh, uh, some warrants were out for his arrest, so he disappeared like a good alcoholic, and he was gone for about two and a half years. We did not know whether he was dead or alive or where he was. We didn't hear one word. And one morning, I got to thinking about, you know, I thought a lot about Steve, and I thought I had a right to know, is Steve dead or alive? And I said that in a prayer. God, let me know, is he dead or is he alive? I hadn't heard from him for two and a half years, and two weeks later, in comes a letter from him. <laughs> Down at the bottom, he says, I'm alive and well. <laughs> he had been out of state. He came back. Within four hours, he was back in jail. <laughs> you know, uh, And uh, he came back into our life, and uh, he would come out to the house, I never saw him drinking or drunk once he came to visit us. He always respected that, no alcohol in our home, you know. And he'd come in the door and I'd put my arm around him and say, Steve, I love you. And uh, one time uh, he, he stood back and said, Dad, you may not know this, but I love you too. And it's the first time I ever heard him say that in all my life, you know. Uh, <laughs> Steve got into, he went back to, a, well, one time, it was about six and a half years ago, he got a call from a doctor and said, uh, Better your your son's in intensive care now at the hospital, and you better if you want to see him alive, you better come down. I said, Doctor, is it AIDS? And he says, Yeah, it's AIDS. Uh, we had suspected that uh, we knew Steve was gay. We, that was not a matter of discussion much. Just you know, we just knew that he was gay. We didn't talk much about it. We went down to Harbor General Hospital and uh, near Long Beach, and he had tubes running out of him and in and out of him and he was my height and he uh, down to about 110 pounds nothing but bone and skin uh, and uh, he was going to die uh, I started talking to Steve about his being gay and I said Steve I don't understand it at all but it doesn't mean I don't love you you see I just don't understand it and this seemed to give him a perk and it brought the rest of the family together as a unit uh, and uh, as a result of that, you know, we decided whether we want to live or die, I believe. And I think he decided he wanted to live a little longer, you know. And he got out of intensive care, and they were giving him a lot of medita uh, medication for uh, his neuocystosis uh, 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 for his lungs. And, uh, and they, uh, through this medication, both kidneys failed. And he wasn't supposed to live for more, two, more than two or three days. He didn't want to go on any support system. He was willing to die. Uh, but I talked to him one time. He didn't want to die in the hospital. So I said, Steve, you want to come home? And I, in the back of my mind, he's going to come home to die. Two or three days. So he brought, he brought him home by ambulance. He had tubes running in and out of him. He was on oxygen 100% of the time. <coughs> and he started getting better at home. The doctor was amazed. He said, you know, it must be the home cooking. But what... I think what's happening is people in the program found out about it and they were praying for Steve and we were praying for his goodwill and everything and uh, he, he needed to live a little bit longer and uh, he lived for another 18 months. During that period of time, my wife puts it this way, we were able to clean the slate clear. Uh, that uh, we were able to uh, correct all of the errors of the past in our relationships. And I learned to love a little bit more. I learned to love for free. Uh, I used to be his chauffeur. Uh, I used to take, take him places, not because I had to, because I wanted to. We used to have some good conversations, you know. 
Uh, uh, Steve never complained about himself and his circumstances. You know, he never he never complained about the consequences of his actions. All of his life, he was willing to take the consequences of his actions. Uh, no complaints. Uh, but he would complain sometimes about society, particularly what they were doing with AIDS patients and things like that. And uh, one time I recognized <coughs> he's complaining. And then I realized, hey, um, he has that right. But I'm judging him as a complainer, am I not? So I've got the problem. So I asked God to, to, uh, to, to help me to love him as he was. Anytime you complain about somebody, you're not loving that person. I don't care what, you argue with me all day long on that one. Uh, and so I said, God, teach me to love him as he is. And he started to change, he stopped his complaining. Isn't that amazing? Uh, <laughs> there was, uh, he, he got an eye infection, which is very common in, with AIDS patients, and he started losing his eyesight. And I think Steve decided that he didn't want to live anymore. And he started deteriorating. Um, I said a prayer. I said, God, don't let him be in pain. And up to the time of his death, the strongest medita medication he ever took was Tylenol with a little codeine in it. A nurse came out one time and said, where's the morphine? He said, there's no morphine. He said, I can get you some morphine. He said, he doesn't need any morphine. Because he was not experiencing pain as so many people in AIDS do experience. And... Uh, uh, we, we, were, we went up to the International in Seattle, and Steve flew up later, and we had a nice visit uh, afterwards, uh, coming, coming back down by car. And uh, it was shortly after that, in November, that he had his demise. He was at home. Goldine, uh, he had not had anything to say for about 12, minutes, about 12 hours before. And uh, he used to see people in the room. Now, some people say, well, that's hallucination. Oh, is that right? Or do they merely have a field of vision that we don't have? But he used to see people, and just before he died, about 15 minutes before he died, he said, what a place, with excitement, what a place. And I was holding on to one hand, Goldine was the other, and just before he died, I said, Steve, I love you, have a good trip. And he was gone, and then Goldine and I cried. We had all the knowledge of what was coming, we had all the knowledge of death and dying, we had all these knowledge of this belief, but it doesn't work at all. You have to go through the sorrow and the grief. And we cried and we held one another. We had a, uh, we had a memorial service for Steve. Uh, also, intuitively, we knew what had to be done. Kind of amazing. Intuitively. And this is one of the promises of the 12, uh, 12 uh, promises, you know. We will intuitively know how to handle situations, and we knew. One of the things that, when Steve was a little baby, I always, I, I never changed a diaper. That just... You know, never change the diaper. But when Steve had his AIDS, I learned to do that when he was 29 years of age, you see. So we have to go through a lot of experiences. That was one of them. Uh, to do it because I wanted to, not because I had to. And it wasn't a pleasant, necessarily pleasant, you know. But we had a memorial st uh, a service for Steve, conducted by a woman on the program who knew Steve prior to his, uh, uh, you know, prior to, and she was crying. And I went up to her and I said, it's okay. I put my arm around her and said, it's okay, it's okay. She said, Bob, I'm supposed to be doing that to you, not you to me. And I realized the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, that it is better to console than to be consoled. And I said to myself, Bob, your program's working. Now, I did have, you know, we cried. We had to go through this sorrow. Uh, and, uh, but the support that we got from the program people.
to kind of close on a happier note, uh, a couple of years after Goldine's sobriety, I was taking her inventory, and <laughs> I don't take inventories anymore. I make loving observations. <laughs> But I was, I was taking her inventory, and I realized she had never made amends to me. <laughs> now, in Al-Anon, we always put the alcoholic first, second, or third, right? And I thought, how can she stay sober if she's never made amends to me? And, and then I thought, well, you know, Bob, get on, you know, let her work her program. You get on your own program, you know, work your own program. So I let it go for a couple of years. And one time, one time, she was walking into the kitchen. I, I was walking into the kitchen, and she was reading A.A. A. Grapevine magazine. And as I went by her, she said, Bob, have I ever made amends to you? And I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. I realized how long it was going to take. And, uh, <laughs> and I uh, said to myself, don't interrupt her because this is pretty important. I said, get comfortable. So I took a wide stance, backed up against the kitchen counter, folded my arms like this, and I said, no, you never have. Uh, and she says, well, I'm sorry, and she went back to reading her magazine. <laughs> now, the point of it is this. What right do I have to expect anybody to make amends to me? What right do I have? If I'm expecting somebody to make amends to me, am I not holding on to a resentment? You better believe it, you see. Now, saying I'm sorry is not making an amend. The only way I can make an amend is to change my behavior, to change my feeling, and change my thinking. That's the only way I can ever make my amends. And if we look at the whole program, I think we will find that all the 12 steps are merely making an amend. What did I have to offer if and when I took that third step, when I think I took that third step? Nothing until maybe there was some house cleaning done from the 4th through the 10th step, so that then in the 11th and 12th step I can become usable in some manner. You see? At that point of the 3rd step. So this is all making the amends. I've discovered my relationship can be boiled down to two words. Available, usable. Those two words. I must make myself available. That's my part. God's part is to make me usable. Now, this whole program, if you come back to the 12th step, all my life I used to say, what's, what's the purpose of life? Why are we here on earth? What's the, what's the purpose of you and I? What, what's my role in life? It had to be more than just being a father and a businessman and a householder and a, a husband. It had to be something a little bit deeper. And I found it a number of years ago, so, so clearly stated in the 12th step. My sole purpose for being here is in the 12th step. It says we tried. A lot of times that 12th step is misquoted. It does not say we carry the message. It says we tried to carry the message. And we tried to practice these principles. What greater purpose for living than that is to make the effort and let God take care of the results. And this is what the whole program is for me. Now, as a result of that, I don't do that for the rewards, but the rewards do come in. And this is a whole program. So I think that if we dive deeply into those 12 steps, into those 12 traditions, into those 12 concepts, the symbol that we use is a triangle with a circle, both AA and Allen. By experiencing the triangle, we then 
experience the circle, which is the completeness and wholeness of life. And I think that this is really available, and hopefully I'm, I'm approaching it. Thank you much. Thank you.